Welcome to the St. Emelins Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And it's great to talk to you again. It's been a little while for lots of reasons. Not least, Simon, you, you went on holiday. I can't believe it. But now that your girls have flown the nest, this leaves you free. You're No school terms to, that you have to abide by or anything. You're off. Yes, I um, went to Africa, had a marvellous time. Serengeti is really quite spectacular. And then I understand that being Dean of the Royal College does also keep you busy. So our apologies, we have missed a month, but we're going to make up for it in a particularly festive bumper edition today. We're going to take you through some of the blog posts from the website, talk about anything that's really emergency medicine at the moment. I guess the first thing to say, Simon, is that before we get anywhere, it's pretty tough out there, isn't it? It is. And I think there's some there's a few canaries in the coal mine there. There's quite a few people I know on Twitter who are normally really quite positive, a bit like yourself, Ian, who are really sort of feeling the, the pinch at the moment. There's a lot of patients on the corridors. There's a lot of patients in the emergency departments. Still got lots of issues around flow. Archem are doing a lot of work about trying to resuscitate emergency care, but so many things going on politically and in the health service at the moment. So much churn and change. It's quite difficult to get those things pushed through. But we are hopeful. We are hopeful. We've got a winter ahead of us. We will get through it. We will get through it, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough one. And it does feel tough. And yes, I have done a, the occasional tweet or post, I think they're now called. And really, that's to try and raise a flag with whatever voice I have. People are very sweet. They come to you and say, are you OK? And I'm, I'm OK. I'm OK. I've sort of been around the mill. We've done this, haven't we, Sam? We've been there and seen it. Although I have to say this is a little different to most of the things we've seen before. And actually, the, the more sort of you get into this, the easier it is perhaps to cope with the medical side of stuff, making decisions, deciding what you're going to do with patients and actually taking a balanced risk about who needs to stay in and who needs to go home. But we do have a voice to try and highlight the problems that are, are happening to, to others. And I know that Simon, the college are doing great work. We see Adrian on Twitter transmitting all of those things that are going on. And I think we can assure listeners that there is a lot happening. That's true. We're going to talk a little bit about sharing information on one of the blog posts today, but getting a consistent message across and trying to get people engaged and realising that emergency medicine is where everything is happening, but actually we're all part of one big long flow system is really important. But at the end of the day, you know, somebody said to me the other day, the, the other day, you know, medicine still is a fantastic career. It's still really interesting what we do. You know, the stuff that we do for patients is fantastic. Wouldn't it be nice if we had the the space, the time and the, the, the throughput that allows us to do that as well as we possibly can? But fundamentally, with you on the day, with a patient, do the best that you can. And, you know, patients will appreciate it. And you can make a difference. And just the other thing says in the media, all this stuff about being a doctor, not being the greatest profession. I know from my medical school work, there is a drop off in people who are applying for medical school, about 25% down this year on other years. My local university may even go through clearing to fill its spaces. That's how much our profession is being looked at by young people who are choosing things, bright, inspiring young people who could choose our profession. And so we do have to find a way through. And hopefully with St. Emlyn's, we're bringing you some positivity. Please don't think that this is the toxic positivity of we're forgetting it all. We know it's not easy. But hopefully some of the things we do, talking about the evidence, talking about what we can do to make a difference. And remember, for that single patient on a single day, you are doing something that really matters. But Simon, let's get into some blog posts and talk some evidence. There's been a lot around and we can start with a biggie. Let's start with Cryostat 2. Dan did a great blog post on this and there's been lots of other stuff in the FOMED space. You'll be able to find other podcasts, other blog posts talking about it. But this is our take at St. Emlyn's. Cryostat, a big trial, one of two that were published on the same day to do with major trauma and bleeding. The other was about Reboa. And Simon, where do you think this takes us? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, the, the whole thing around traumatic coagulopathies is fascinating. And Karen Brohe, who was one of the lead authors in this one, put a tweet out, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that just simply said, there's so much that we don't know about bleeding in trauma. And that's absolutely true. It's great to see new evidence, but this is not the end point of us understanding trauma, traumatic coagulopathy at all. But essentially what this was, 
really amazing feat. So over 1,600 patients recruited across the UK in major trauma centres with major trauma who were bleeding. So these are patients who we think are bleeding to death. And they were randomised to either get cryoprecipitate or not cryoprecipitate as part of their major haemorrhage protocols. And the expectation here was, because we know that things like fibrinogen levels fall in this group of patients, and we think that that's a factor in them getting significant coagulopathy and then multiple organ failure syndromes later, is that by giving them more early on, they do better. You know, well-designed trial, it's a randomised control trial, it's exactly what you want to see when you're looking at an intervention like this. It's big numbers, it's just the sort of patients that we see. Yada, yada, yada. And what do they find? It didn't make a difference. And it was really surprising that it didn't make a difference. Survival rates, you know, 10% versus 16% in the um, penetrating trauma group and 34.8% versus 30.4% in the blunt trauma group. So the overall, the lead outcome, the principal outcome in this study is it made no difference because none of those are statistically significant. In the subgroup analysis, again, quite interesting about the, the different mechanisms. So actually it performed worse in penetrating trauma patients and blunt trauma patients. It seemed to be slightly better if you gave it in a 60 to 90 minute window, which is interesting. Again, not what we were expecting to think. Oh, I should also mention it wasn't just um, the UK. There were some US trauma centres involved in this as well. A great, really well conducted trial. It definitely advances our learning around coagulopathy. But where do we go from here? Do we need bespoke um, treatments for our patients? Do we need better measurements? Do we need to know exactly what we're doing before we give them just drugs blindly? All of those questions are now sort of flying about. And I'm sure we'll see trials around those sort of things. And these are sick patients, aren't they? Average injury severity score of 29. These are really poorly trauma patients. So th this is a group who are really, really looking for us to do as much as we can. There's clearly a lot going on. And Simon, you'll be a lot closer to this than me. In the research world, in the UK, this is a good time to be part of emergency medicine research. And as I say, this was published in JAMA alongside another paper about Reboa, led by UK emergency physicians and others like Karim Brohi who are really leading the way. And what, what a great place to be where we work in a specialty that's making these important strides forward, even if those important strides tell us that we're not really sure what we're doing. Sometimes it's important to know what's not to do as well as what to do, isn't it? And I guess that leads us on rather nicely to the next post, which is about the annual ILCOR update. Now, you don't always get a flurry of posts from me and St. Emlyn's, but this is obviously when Simon goes on holiday. So there's two from me, which, as Simon said before we recorded, is unusual. But this was just me trying to take the ILCOR update. That's the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. They're the sort of umbrella organisation for all of those national resuscitation councils, not just the UK, not just America, but Australia, New Zealand, uh, India, Asia, all around the world, where they put a summary together of what's really the up-to-date evidence for adult life support. Well, th there is a paediatric one as well, but I concentrated on adult life support. My take-home message having read it, so you guys don't have to, is that there's not a lot of evidence out there. It's actually a really evidence-light zone. And even though we talk about ALS and we sort of, to an extent, preach the gospel about those three to five minutes and doing this and doing that, there's not much evidence to suggest whether that works or not. And it's really down to expert opinion as to why we do it. Now, I focused on a few, Simon, and these are topics that are very familiar to readers of the blog and listeners of the podcast. ECPR and cardiac arrest we've covered. And if you haven't heard it already, I do encourage you to have a listen to Andy Curry's podcast about ECPR. It gives lovely history where it's come from to where that is and where we might go in the future. Uh, the bottom line is the ILCOR update kind of agrees. It's not really there for uh, lots of use now, although I notice there's a paper just out from Australia in the last couple of days, which we'll hopefully be reviewing very soon that may take us a bit further. Double sequence defibrillation. Where are you up to with that, Simon? Have you tried it yet? I certainly have. Um, not so long ago, in fact, uh, I had a patient who 
by the time I arrived as part of a basics team, uh, the patient was already clear, quite clean in refractory VF and could do anything. Two machines went on, got them out of VF. I mean, I've, I've done this on and off for about the last eight years, to be honest. So I don't want to say that I'm ahead of the game, but changing pad positions has always been in the protocols or has been in the protocols for, for many years. So that should be done more. And I think there's lots of people out there who are just not changing pad positions. It's in JR Calc guidelines, which is um, UK uh, ambulance service guidelines. So if you're not doing paddle changes, start doing that. And DSD for the for the right group of patients. And yeah, absolutely. Have you? So I haven't got to it yet. And actually, I haven't really seen a patient who needs it. These are patients in refractory VF. So ones where you just haven't managed to get them out of it. I think it's uh, more than three goes and you get into this group. And they sort of say we should be considered. So they agree with what we said with our review of the dose VF trial, that if you have a patient in refractory VF, then this is worth giving a go. But yeah, just be careful that you're not voiding warranties. The other ones I picked up on were calcium and cardiac arrest. This is now a no-no. Uh, they recommend against the routine administration. And for once in the ILCOR guidelines, this is a strong recommendation with moderate certainty evidence, just to let you know that is as pretty strong as it gets when it comes to evidence-based in uh, resuscitation. And then there was some guidance about drowning, which living on the coast as I do uh, matters quite a lot to us. But it's all really common sense stuff. Prediction of outcome following cardiac arrest remains a controversial topic, I think. The bit that I've tended to learn is that we can't really predict it. But I do have intensive care colleagues who look at me with sort of, well, sympathetic eyes when I'm trying to encourage them to uh, give the patient a go. And they say, well, it's not going to get anywhere. And there is quite a few things that the ILCOR guidelines suggest and suggest against, which really don't happen in the ED and happen further down the line. Yeah. And the thing I took out of that is that thing about further down the line is that the things that they're recommending against are the short-term early things, which I, like you, have heard people use. So things like grey-white differentiation on the CT, they're you know, strongly against using that. So it does seem that you you definitely need time with these post-cardiac arrest patients to decide whether or not they're going to survive. And it's not a, it's really not a recess room decision, unless there's something else going on, like you know, significant comorbidity and things like that. It really reiterates, if you look at all the recommendations for all of those prediction of outcome, it says brackets, weak recommendation, very low certainty evidence. And that really sort of sums up quite a lot of this guideline. We're doing what we think is the best thing, but we don't yet really know. And just as we talked about a moment ago, talking about the cryostat trial, there's so much more work to do to try and really work out what we can do at that point where a patient's doing their very best to die and how we can help them survive. Our next post is about the science of silence. Now, I feel a bit awkward with silence, as I'm sure Simon did just then. But this is from Liz. Uh, Liz Crow, our colleague in Australia, who's done so much work with us about well-being in the past. And really, I see as our go-to person about the proper meaning of what well-being is. And this is about trying to find some time for a little bit of quiet. And we could all do with a bit of that, couldn't we? Yes, we can. And But I think some really interesting points in here. And, and one of the conversations that we had around this blog post made me remember about the first big research project that I did. And so I set off at the university and doing an MPhil. I was still in emergency medicine mode. So I'd be there at like half seven in the morning and I'd just, you know, be da, 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 da. and the professor called me in after um, a couple of weeks and, and sat me down and went, you really just need to spend some time looking out the window. And I went, yeah, kind of, what do you mean? And he went, well, if you're just doing stuff all the time, when are you going to have time to have original thoughts, to have some innovation, to have some time to just sort of process things and to just let new ideas come forth 
And I really love that idea. It's something I've taken forward through life. And I know people won't believe it. I do try and find some downtime just to have time where I'm not thinking about the stuff. For me, it's often doing exercise, walking the dog and things like that. And Liz talks about some very similar things here about taking time, actually making time where you're not being stimulated by something else like music, making phone calls in the car by you know looking after the kids, by having the radio on the background. Actually, silence has got a reasonable evidence base behind it that it is a good thing for your brain. And I actually also think for innovation. I really struggle with this. And I know I do. And I'm trying really hard. But if I'm not permanently stimulated, I I get agitated. Uh, If you take my phone away from me for a matter of moments, I start to get a bit of hot sweats. And I see it in my children as well. My children enjoy playing Xbox games, as I'm sure many others do. They're teenagers now. And so they have phones. And when the Xbox game is loading, they're back on their phone doing something else because they haven't got the patience to wait for the game to load. And I desperately want to go in there and tell them that that's ridiculous. And then I realized that's what I would do. So there is a lot of work to do here. And I, I read Liz's post. And the next dog walk I went on, I deliberately didn't listen to a podcast or didn't listen to music. And, and, and it did feel good. I haven't gotten the habit of doing it every time. And I think we could all do with it, especially how noisy are emergency departments. I do walk around and turn alarms off whenever I can. Not on the patients who need the alarms. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, not just turning a, an alarm off on the patient with SATs of 75. I mean, the ones where the patient's not even connected and yet the machine beeps at you. So noisy, and just a bit of quiet. And I think that's what I'm looking for over Christmas. Bit of, bit of, bit of just gentle quiet would be lovely, wouldn't it? It would. I don't think it's going to happen over Christmas though, mate. No, and certainly not at work. But there is something about noise, isn't there? Something about trying to get away from the persistent noise that we're we're exposed to. Worth a read and worth thinking about as well, probably without music on. Our next post came from Stefan, who is our go-to guy when it comes to how emergency departments work. He's doing a lot of work with uh, local organisations in his area. He works down in Yeovil, not a million miles from me down here in the south of England. And this is a post about flow. Flow is an obsession with emergency medicine. So it's an absolute obsession with emergency departments about how to keep things going. And this is a fairly meaty post, but worth a read. Did it strike a chord with you, Simon? It did. And... It's quite an interesting post to read if you're an emergency physician um, and you work in an emergency department because you read that there's quite a lot of facts in here which you know about already. So things like we know that flow is a major determinant of the performance of an emergency department and yet it's not something that we have direct control over. You know, things like that, you know. We do know that actually the length of stay for patients who have minor injuries is actually quite small because they come in, they go away. Whereas the patients who actually need to be admitted are the ones who have very, very long lengths of stay within the emergency department. And so it's disproportionate punishment. I think that's probably the right word on those patients who need their care the most. What's in this is Stefan's approach to how he articulates that data to people who don't have the lived experience and the years of experience that you and I and our listeners have had. And we've heard, you know, how many times you've been in a meeting where somebody comes along and it's usually it's the white knight on a horse who comes in and goes, oh, if we just do this one thing, we wouldn't have any problem. If we just saw the patients within five minutes arrival, there wouldn't be any waits. You and I just sit there and sigh because you go, yeah, we heard this three years ago, six years ago, nine years ago, 12 years ago. And one of the problems we have in emergency medicine is communicating what is a very complex issue to other people. And so what Stefan's done in here is he's shown how you can use data, you can use data visualization, and you can use time 
to demonstrate to people who don't have that understanding. And he uses an analogy which I really quite liked, which is sort of the Lego analogy. And if you've used Lego and if you had kids, you'll know that when you're when you're small, you have the Duplo blocks that are like big blocks. So big chunks of really easy information to move around. That's how you approach high-level people in your organization within the NHS about how you communicate things. When you start getting into your department, you use slightly more data, that's sort of the Lego level. And then when you're really talking about individual patient pathways and things, that's when you get into the technical level where you're using very small pieces of data. And what he really very well articulates is that if you go into a high-level meeting with really, really defined, really discrete levels of data, it won't be understood or worse, it'll be misunderstood. So there's a great lesson in here, not just about flow, but about how you pitch information and how you make yourselves understood. And also the basics of the big messages that we need to get across to people about how we do actually improve flow in emergency medicine. It's actually quite a good read. But it says at the top it's going to take you 13 minutes. I think if you think through it, it's probably taking take you 15 or 16 minutes, but really time uh, well spent. It is frustrating, isn't it? Those high level data things that get out in the press, even in the last couple of days, we've had the publication of the latest four hour data because we're still publishing four hour data and experienced journalists. It's like my it's like that thing on International Women's Day where the people ask about an International Men's Day and there's a person who comes back and tells them when it is. And it happens every year. As regular as you like, somebody will say four hours to be seen. And somebody has to remind a high level health journalist that it's not four hours to be seen. It's four hours to be seen, assessed, diagnosed, treated and either discharged or admitted. And it happens every time, every time. And this is a really simple message. And gosh, it frustrates me. If we can't get that simple bit right, the complex stuff is so, so much more difficult. But here are some tools that we can use. And it is, as you say, Simon, so frustrating in a meeting where somebody comes up with an idea that you thought of 10 years ago or 20 years ago when you just started and you want to say, no, it's not worth it. But actually, for a lot of our colleagues, you have to just go through the routine of trying it. For me, it's about letting colleagues give it a go because old hags like us saying, oh, that'll never work. That's not going to work either. So sometimes you just got to try them again. But yeah, we're repeating stuff in our department that we tried, as you say, a few years ago, a few years before that, and a few years before that. And lo and behold, it still doesn't quite fix the problem. Yeah, we've got a few other blog posts on this uh, subject around the the site. So there's a really good one that Craig Ferguson did a few years ago about uh, the impossible game concept and about how you can look at performance as a game, because anything which is measured could be sort of talked about as a game. And how in emergency medicine, the rules of the game are so complicated, so so much change and so many influences that you can't actually win, but you still have to play. So that's a bit about flow. Back to some medicine, back to another journal club, another post by me. Crazy. Who'd have thought it? This is the Dashed study about aortic syndrome, acute aortic syndrome in the emergency department. And this was quite a neat little study, I thought. They'd managed to gather a whole load of data over just a couple of days to look at all the patients who'd presented with what could be aortic dissection. And the thing I kind of took out of this is, this is a really hard diagnosis, isn't it? I mean, they they looked at tens of thousands of patients over multiple sites, all in the UK, and they asked the investigators to fill in quite a comprehensive data collection sheet, actually, to then look at whether or not those patients had aortic dissection. All of them had presented with symptoms or signs that were suggestive that they could have aortic pathology. And the truth is, hardly any of them did. This is needle in haystack territory, not just this is needle in hayfield territory, but one that we just cannot afford to miss. What it did point out to me is that actually the job we do is really hard. That was my take home. 
because we will be pulled over the coals for the aortic dissection that that we don't diagnose. I, I don't like the word missed because no one misses things deliberately. It's just that we don't manage to diagnose it. I know that's probably semantics. This is tough. And there are some times where no matter what we do, unless we probably keep people in the department a lot longer and we over-investigate, for want of a better term, lots of people, there will be patients who with aortic dissection doesn't get diagnosed. And for them, that may be a terminal event. And that's really hard to take. But it is just the way it might be with this diagnosis. I completely agree. I thought it was a really interesting paper. Really well done to the authors, as all the papers today. I mean, you know, fantastic work, folks. What a couple of caveats on this one. We know that in UK emergency departments, it's all—it's not entirely sure who made these assessments. And when you're looking for this kind of diagnosis, and there are many around like this, sometimes you need an experienced eye. And I would like a little bit more assurance that these patients who are at risk of, you know, basically life-threatening illness were actually seen by a trained emergency physician, not necessarily somebody who's just on a, a, a rotational placement. So there are a few bits and pieces I can pick out of here. But yeah, I took the same data out that you did. Just when they do their analysis, though, we, when we're looking for aortic dissection, I suppose we want a test which is really sensitive because we don't want to miss anything. And the tests were rubbish, weren't they? I mean, the, none of them had a, any sort of level of sensitivity that you would be found useful in clinical practice. Some of them were reasonably specific. So there are a group of patients who could be identified as almost certainly they have got an aortic dissection. But actually, how much use is that in the emergency department? Because if it's dead obvious, those aren't the ones we miss. So yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I guess what we're trying to say is that as senior emergency physicians, we need to be able to train up our colleagues so that they can use those experience to... And I mean, the thing I took away was that the I know some people hate this firm, the gestalt of a senior emergency physician is as good as any of the tests we have. But we've got to have an environment where clinicians can use that gestalt. I often talk to our uh, colleagues about the fact that if you were told the troponin machine wasn't working, bear with me for this analogy, you wouldn't keep sending troponins, would you? You would just stop. You say, okay, we're going to have to depend on something else. We can't keep sending troponins because the machine isn't working. It's giving us fake results or, or results that are not accurate. Let's stop doing it. And yet for emergency physicians, they have the same issue as a troponin machine that's not working. If you're surrounded by noise, too many patients to look after, you're trying to keep going as best you can, then by definition, your ability to make those diagnoses is going to become less accurate, just like our faltering troponin machine. And that's why looking after ourselves, looking after each other, and also we have to find a way to make sure that we're looking at the patients who may have the really life-threatening diagnoses because we all too often get distracted, rightfully so because the patients are there, but with the diseases that aren't necessarily going to kill people. And those are the diseases we should be concentrating on. It's so much part of a bigger problem, but as diagnostic machines, we've got to look after ourselves. And this is a particular diagnosis where we have to be absolutely on it. We have to have our antennae up. We have to have time to go and talk to the patients, think about what's going on and not be distracted by somebody thrusting another ECG on the 22-year-old who's got mild tachycardia with their sore throat in front of us while we're trying to think about it. A difficult diagnosis. And yeah, if you miss it, or we don't like that word, do we? But if, if you're the person on the day and the patient doesn't get it diagnosed, you'll feel dreadful. I mean, it will be a difficult experience. And there'll be people who will have had that experience and it's not pleasant, but it's a, tr it's a tough one. And I think this does come down to us realising we have to do the best for the most people. And emergency medicine is not a 0% game. Most of the time, we're having to make the best diagnosis we can in an environment which is by no means ideal. And you will have days where you come away and think, oh, I've missed it. 
or somebody will tell you, why is it that people send emails about these things? Think of all the good you do. I know that's an easy thing to say, but these are hard diagnoses and we're doing it in a hard environment. And actually talking about hard environments, that does take us well onto Anissa's post about just what's been happening in Israel and Palestine. And this is a difficult topic because however you talk about it, there'll be a way in which we talk that means that we might upset some people and, and not upset other people. Or we might, It's a hard one. The bottom line is we have colleagues out in Gaza doing the best they can. And we've heard some stories which are frankly horrific. And this post really just reminds us of what might be happening in other places and what's happening to our colleagues. We were asked to put this on. It's actually from the Global Emergency Care Cooperative, which you should go and check out. The links are on the blog and on the show notes. Please go and do that. And the approach they've taken is that they've not initially talked about the politics at all, really. They've just said that, you know, it is morally wrong to interfere with healthcare systems. It's morally wrong to kill people who are innocent. It's morally wrong to hold civilians hostage and a number of other statements. I, I, I won't read them all out. You can go and have a look yourself. Um, and our thoughts truly are with those, I can't think of a better word than brave colleagues of ours who are doing these things, not just in Gaza, but around the world. There are many people who willingly volunteer to go and try and help people in these incredibly dangerous scenarios. And whatever the politics, all we can think we can most certainly agree on is that those physicians and nursing staff and all the healthcare professionals who are doing these incredibly brave acts deserve our support and gratitude and and fundamentally our respect because it's not something I could do. And I look on in awe at some of those colleagues who I know, and we are most supportive of you and it's an eminence we admire and would do anything we can to support you. And we hope a little bit that the podcast and other podcasts around the world help take some of this knowledge to those areas where it might be hard to get access these things otherwise. But our thoughts are with you. Yeah, and I'll name one person. There are many who are out there, but Natalie Thirtle, who we met through the SAC conferences, um, is an absolute hero of ours. Um, please follow her Twitter feed or um, other social media um, and keep your eye on Medicine Sans Frontières because a number of people that we know have been working with them in the region and uh, their work is remarkable. Simon, that wraps up a bumper issue of the St. Emelin's podcast covering two months of our blog posts. Uh, there will be more to come from us. And as ever, a little reminder, please like, follow, subscribe, do all those things that you're supposed to do. Remember all the stuff that exists on the blog site that is there in perpetuity that may be useful. So for those of you who are revising for exams, our FR Chem revision guide and even our medical school final year revision guide are both really worth a look and worth pointing people in the direction of. And we've got all of our ebooks and other things too. So please use those resources. We're working on ways to try and make those resources more available and easier to find for you. Lots going on in the background. And again, if you'd like to write for St. Emelin's or contribute in any way, just get in touch. It's a great way to tick that I'm involved research box at your ARCP if you're in the UK. It is something that keeps us going to keep us up to date. And also engaging with like-minded people can be really helpful. That's it from us from the St. Emelin's podcast for another month. Simon, I hope you have a really restful, peaceful, joyous and happy Christmas. Same to you and same to everybody else out there listening. Take care, everyone, and be safe. We're thinking of you all. Have fun.